From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire! With filmmaker Irene Taylor Brodsky, poet Matthew Zapruder, with music from Bodies on the Beach and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you. Thank you, Elena. Thanks, everybody, for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We have a great show for you this week. Our theme is love language, Mm. which relates to all of our guests in one way or another. Um, For the, I don't know, few people who don't know the whole, like, love language thing. Right, 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 right. Like, for those of you who didn't have your mom send it to you on Facebook as a link, it was this (laughs) book from the 1990s, The Five Love Languages, and this guy listed and then wrote about what he thought were all the different ways that we can show and receive love. And there are only five. In his opinion, they are... Words of affirmation, mm-hmm. quality time, mm-hmm. receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Mm. I feel like this is an incomplete list because what is not on here is texting pictures of your pets. <laughs> my love language with my wife is 100% just sending each other photos of the animals doing things. If one of us is at work and one of us is at home, it is a constant, it's just a barrage of photographs <laughs> that are frankly like distracting when you're at work. I get texts during the show from my wife (laughs) of the animals doing things. But if you don't get those texts, you know you're in a fight. Oh, oh. Right? Like the absence of the animal texts indicates something because when we're on a normal day, it's just like a flurry. So that's my level. What about you, Passarello? How do you and your partner or, or just the people in your lives? How do you express Hmm. love language? Well, me and my long-suffering partner of 17 years... Uh, I would say the five love languages don't really work for us. Really? Because I think he responds to all five of those and engages in all five of those, and I don't trust any of them. So we definitely had to come up with a a, a sixth love language. Okay, and it is? Uh, Making up songs. We make up little jingle songs, and some of them we have been singing to each other for like 17 years. We like pull them out like little photographs from, oh, we made up this song on this trip that we took. And they're all, you know, spectacular songs. Can you give me an example of, like, a greatest hit from mm. your relationship from, like, uh, back in the day? Well, the song of the summer of 2009. Okay. Was, Who can forget? Yeah, it was, uh, it was not Crazy in Love by Beyonce no. or whatever, single ladies. Uh, it was, in fact, uh, the hit song, These Are the Most Expensive Band-Aids in the World. <laughs> um... <laughs> So many follow-up questions. Uh, <laughs> but maybe they're answered in song. Can you sing some of sure. these are the yeah. most expensive band-aids in the world? Yeah, uh, it's real catchy, so you guys will be singing it on the way home. It goes, <laughs> I'm going to put this band-aid on my toes. Then maybe then I'll put one on my nose. But maybe not. It costs a lot. Because they're the most expensive band-aids in the world. And then there's a saxophone that goes, wah, 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 wah. And then the girls in the background go, yeah, they're Pretty good, right? That's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) 
it answered almost none of my questions about the origin of the song. Like, what did you guys come across the most expensive Band-Aids in the world? Yeah, in Montreal. So then when we remember the trip we took to Montreal in 2009, uh, we just sing that song to each other. It all comes rushing back, you know? Oh, that's yeah. adorable. Yeah, it's a, you know, we're pretty cool. What, what is the audience here at the Alberta Rose saying is their unconventional love language? Oh, these have been great. Uh, you guys are some sweethearts out there. So you're also weird. Um, <laughs> Here's one from Merman. Merman's unconventional love language is not watching the next episode until we're both at home. Oh, my gosh. Right? Honestly. If I hear that a couple or a thruple are, one of them is watching ahead of the other people, I'm like, they're going to break up. Oh, yeah. That's like... That's a leading indicator. Yeah, no. That's a canary in the coal mine of your relationship. Yeah. Okay, what else are you saying? Uh, Dan's partner's unconventional love language, she answers the phone by saying... Hello, handsome. Every time he calls. Or is it just every time and he's just catching it on the times that he calls? <laughs> I think one of their love languages is no longer live wire. Yes. After that. yes. Nice having you here. All right. You know, this feels like a good time to bring our guests out. We got somebody just off stage who knows all about love languages. In fact, he uses his poetry to communicate both love uh, and despair, and in fact, a bunch of other things as well. His latest work is a book of poems titled Father's Day. Please welcome Matthew Zapruder to Livewire. Um, Matthew, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. You've written a, a good number of books. I'm curious, this new one, it, a lot of it's about your relationship with your son and becoming a father and also the scene in sort of American politics and, and what we've all been dealing with. Uh, which came first uh, for writing this book, uh, the becoming of a father or the concern about the kind of political unrest in this country? Well, I was writing the poems uh, in a few years before 2016, the election. I usually just write a bunch of poems and then, you know, I'm writing and I'm throwing things away and keeping them and just sort of not thinking too much about a book. And then at some point it starts to feel booky. You know, it has a kind of gravity. And then I, and at that point I kind of look at it and see what some of the themes are, ideas or just concerns. Um, and this time this weird thing happened where I was starting to have a book kind of form and then this calamity um, happened in November 2016. And I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then after that, I think that some of the uh, more implicit concerns or worries about America, or the American political system or inequality, you know, uh, structural racism, things like that, that were in the poems kind of burst out into, into my uh, thinking. So some of those things became more overt and the poems that were written after that. And so the book is kind of spans that time, I guess. It's overt and like you name people. Like you have a poem called, I believe, Paul Ryan. Yeah. You have a poem called Roseanne Barr. Yeah. I got in trouble for that Roseanne Barr poem. That I went, I, you know, I don't know if you all are on Facebook, but um, sometimes you're blissfully oblivious if people are talking about you on Facebook, but then every once in a while someone will tag you. <laughs> yeah. They thought it was unfair that I was attacking this American patriot. Well, I was, I was curious about that because I, I was reading this book of poetry and, and then it's like, you're just like, hey, isn't Roseanne Barr the worst? I mean, I'm paraphrasing. And then you're like, hey, Paul Ryan, here's, here's what is so absolutely sinister about you. And like, are you worried that they might hear about these poems? What would you say if you got an email from Paul Ryan? 
<laughs> wow. Um, I'm not worried that they are going to hear about these poems. Um, I think they have more important things going on for them. Um, Doubtful. I, <laughs> right now, maybe not so much. I uh, did not think... I, I think what happened is, is that I was interested in anger as a, as an, as a literary emotion. I think so, uh, very often, you know, in, in, when we think about literature, there are certain emotions or attitudes that we privilege over others. And anger is something that, would you agree that? It seems to me, in poetry especially, we, we think of this kind of beauty and uh, we kind of practice out the hatred and there are other sort of better angels of our emotional nature that we put in poems. Totally, but that's, I don't like the way that poetry keeps getting drawn away from the realities of life. And anger, especially in this time, is such a part of our life. So I thought it'd be so interesting, well, what would happen if I just gave myself over to that anger occasionally and let myself just feel it? could I control the poem enough and keep it from just turning into a rant or something like that? And that, that was what interested me about those couple of poems that are in there where I just sort of let it go like that. Uh, we're talking to Matthew Zapruder here on Livewire. His latest book is Father's Day. Um, you, you call out Walt Whitman, who you talk about being one of your favorite poets, but also somebody who had very problematic views on race. And the, the, I think this is something that uh, a lot of people are coming up against, whether it's movies, television, poetry, you name it, if it's more than 10 years old, most of it's problematic. Mm -hmm. What should we do with, with people who, who we admire their work, but we also have a real problem with a lot of their views? That is a difficult question. Um, I would say in that poem about Walt Whitman, I'm more interested in investigating um, what I do with my deep love of this poet, um, who's a master poet and had a huge influence on all our literature. Um, how do I reconcile that with the fact that he made, you know, overt racist remarks? Um, and what, what is, like, how do I start to think about that? I think I was more interested in that than coming to a conclusion about it. I just wanted to ask some questions. Um, I don't know the answer to your question. Um, I think that bringing it up, talking about it, being honest about it is a good way to start. Um, but I don't have an answer. I don't know what to say about beloved writers who also, it turns out, were... A-holes. <laughs> this is Livewire from PRI. We are going to take a short break and then be back with more with Matthew Zapruder in just a moment. Stay with us. Hey, have you subscribed to the Livewire newsletter yet? Every week we share live show dates there as well as peaks from behind the scenes at each episode. The newsletter is also a great way to be part of our engaged community of listeners you can discover acclaimed authors and thinkers, hilarious stand-up comedy, and of course, live musical acts. You can subscribe today by clicking on Stay Informed over at LiveWireRadio.org. Hey, welcome back to LiveWire Radio from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host here with Elena Passarello. We're also talking to uh, poet Matthew Zapruder. His latest book is Father's Day. Um, I was wondering, Matthew, could you read uh, a poem from your new book called The Black Bird? Sure. I was thinking about, uh, I don't know why, but I started thinking about what it would be like if you, had a, if you wrote a poem that went viral, that expression, go viral, which is not likely to happen in my case, but um, uh, what it would feel like, how, how, how strange it would be. Um, so that's what the subject of this poem is. It's called The Black Bird. I wrote a poem once. I thought it was, to be honest, just okay. Then it went viral. Everyone loved it, and soon enough, I almost did too. Though I also knew something nameless, I pushed down ever deeper. 
I wrote more, a whole book named after the viral poem. It won all the awards. People even really named a whole conference after it and wept when they even thought about it. It was far too much, so extreme it had to be real, what I had done. Now, whenever I try to write, I feel so afraid of feeling nothing. So I just write house and war and dapple. <laughs> Everyone smiles and says, yes. But really, I just want to get high and sit on the porch of my heart. Yes, of my heart, that's what I said. Where I can watch the city go by and imagine buildings have feelings. But whenever I close my eyes and try to go there, I only see a black bird with a yellow beak staring at me. I keep waiting, but it just stares back at me and does not speak even one word from the other world. Matthew Zapruder here on Livewire. I thought that poem was an interesting idea because you, you work in a form that is unlikely to go viral. I mean, how, what's your relationship with wanting your work to be popular and successful and also wanting to make work that's like meaningful to you? I mean, a lot of this new book is about your son. It's really important, meaningful stuff to you. Do you care if it sells? I don't care if it sells, but I want to make the work available to people. Um, I got interested in the idea of, is it possible to write a poem that's available to everyone that also does all the things that I think poetry can do? Is, you know, can, you, can you make a poem that's available to everyone that doesn't give up any of the things that I think are so singular about writing poems as opposed to writing prose, which I also love to read? Um, and so, yeah, I want it to be available, I guess, and, and open and feel welcoming. But it's not about sales, thankfully. I was, I, when I was reading your other book, Why Poetry, I was kind of cracking up at the introduction because you basically start the book by saying, when you're at a party and you tell someone that you write poetry, they often say, I just got to level with you. I don't get poetry. I think it's cool when people say they don't understand. I think it's good. And then you can start to have a real conversation about it. Um, and then you can say, well, where, where do you get confused or what don't you get? And, and often as soon as you start talking about the actual text instead of poetry is this kind of floaty outside thing, then uh, always people know a lot more than they think you, they do about the poems. And that's really what that Why Poetry book is about, about that you already have what you need to read poems. You just have to forget some things that you've been taught. I love that part in Why Poetry that talks about negative capability, this time-honored concept. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you find it in your own work or in your reading? Yeah, that's from a letter by the poet John Keats that he wrote to his brothers. And he says basically that, um, you know, it's about being in contradictions and not irritably reaching after fact or reason. And like, that's the thing that poetry is so good at. It's you, you're in a contradictory space where there's multiple points of view and multiple realities that are there at the same time. And uh, I remember when I read that, I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is the key to everything. And, I, and it turned out to be a bad, like, life strategy, <laughs> but it was a good poetry strategy. So, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a key concept for poets. Sometimes I joke that I'm, like, contractually obligated to bring it up or talk about it every time I talk about poetry. But It feels so punk rock, you know, oh. that there's multiple voices and multiple opportunities and the things that you know the least about might actually be sort of the guiding, driving force of what you're making. Yeah, I mean, a little bit later in the letter, Keats talks about how, um, you know, half-truth 
is really this valued thing in poetry, you know, not capturing everything or saying everything or, or, or answering every question, but opening up things. And that's the thing I think is once you get into that space, when you're reading poems, it's a lot, you can relax and just sort of think of them more as questions than as answers, I guess. Uh, we're talking to Matthew Zapruder here on Livewire. Uh, his latest book is Father's Day. Uh, why do you think that so many people do so often have a kind of reflexive, negative feeling about the idea of poetry? And I will admit to myself, not thinking of myself as a poetry fan, but any time I read poetry, including your book, I'm always like, oh, I didn't think about the world this way before. Like, it consistently makes me think about things differently, and I consistently enjoy poetry, but I would not think of myself as a poetry fan. Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, one big reason has to do with how poetry is taught in school. Um, it's there's a lot of misinformation about it, and um, but I think there and there are other social reasons why. But I think in the deepest level, um, and I write this in the book that that the truth of poetry it's not that it's hard to um, understand; it's that it's hard to accept. And I think that sometimes poems are asking us to be in the space that might not be that's very like naked in a way spiritually. And that can feel painful if you're not in the right mood for it or, or can just so, so there's a part of us that maybe wants to resist that, but is also drawn to it. So I, I, as I wonder sometimes whether it's not that at the heart of all of it, you know, that it's so true poems in a way that we want to, yeah. we want to say they're not true to protect ourselves. Well, are you at this point comfortable writing very, very, honest and, uh, to use your word, kind of naked things about your life and about your family? Like, does it, do you feel vulnerable when you put a book like this new book out? It's brutal. Yes. So that's I, a no. I, yeah. I do not feel comfortable at all. Um, and I have to play this little trick on myself where I imagine no one's going to read these things. Um, and that's the only way I can write them. And I, I say to myself, oh, I can always keep them to myself or never show anybody. I mean, because it's too, and not that, I mean, not that my work is so personal or so naked, but it's just, I'm, I'm kind of actually a private person. Like I don't, but I think really in literature and also in poetry or literature in general, I am interested in how my experience can connect with all of yours and with yours and yours. And so I'm not so interested in writing a memoir or about my particular experiences, or whatever. I'm interested in where it starts to become common or symbolic or representative and where we can make a connection among ourselves as people. Um, so th I think I have to go to the deepest things that matter to me as a person to find those things. Well, Matthew, I'm going to say something to you that you're not going to like, but everybody should go out and get Father's Day, Matthew's new book, even though he's hoping it would have zero sales. Matthew's a pruder, everybody. We'll be back with more with him in just a moment on Livewire. All right, Matthew, uh, when we get smart, thoughtful people like yourself here on Livewire, we like to run a little exercise with them where we have them answer some questions, some very deep, very important questions. We call this the jar of truth. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to pull a question at random from this physical jar that we have here on stage. Our announcer, Elena Passarello, is going to read the question, and we want you to give us your honest, truthful, in-the-moment response. But here's the thing, because you are a poet, as you write a lot about poetry, you even have what you might call some hot poetry takes, <laughs> if that's a Super thing. Super hot. Um, because, because you have opinions on poetry, uh, this whole uh, exercise, the jar of truth, all of the questions are poetry-related. So this is Ooh. the poetry-related jar of truth for Matthew Zapruder. So all would right. you please draw a, a question out of there? 
and uh, we'll have it. Elena okay. read it, and we'll get your opinion. Matthew's a pruder. Is it still cool to rhyme poems? So cool. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> people rhyme. People put out rhyming books of poems, and, they're, and they can be, and when they're great, they can be great. And I like to read, I mean, Keats rhymes. Yeah. You know, I love, I love rhyme when, you know. Do you ever use it? Have you used it in your books? I rhymed a lot when I was first starting to write poetry. I wrote a ton of terrible rhyming poems. I mean, really gruesome failures. <laughs> and, uh, but I learned a lot doing it. So I think I realized that maybe the way I rhyme is more conceptual. You know, it's not sonic. It's rhyming ideas. I guess mm. because the thing about a rhyming poem is if it doesn't work, it's so obvious mm-hmm. what the person was trying to do. Right, but when it does work, I mean, if it, like, and I mean, I'm going to use a musical example, but like in, if Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan, when these rhymes feel as if they came up out of the earth, you know, mm-hmm. or like they were spoken by rocks or something, mm-hmm. they have this undeniable truth to them. So when it works, it's the best. Well, know? that's interesting because, of course, this makes sense, but you're including music in poetry. I know, I, mean, I cheated. But I, was, I wasn't even thinking of it in that context. I mean, do you think of, of all like music that has lyrics as being basically a form of poetry? No, because I think that music has a lot of information. And so the lyrics of a, of a song are meant to work together with the music to communicate information. So usually it's usually the lyrics of a song are like incomplete if you just read them in isolation. Not always. There are exceptions, of course, but which isn't to denigrate that kind of writing. It's, it's really hard and amazing, but I don't really think of them. I think poems take place against silence. You know, they're in dialogue with silence in the background of silence, and they're all the information. You know, poems are all the information. You know, there's no music to, ha- to communicate something to texture or, or emotion or mood or something. So I don't think that lyrics are really poems, but that's not to say that they aren't important literature. You know? So like Lou Bega, Mambo Number no. 5, not poetry? <laughs> well, there are exceptions, yes. Okay, that's good. Matthew Zapruder, everybody, right here on LiveWire. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Our theme this week is love language, and we asked this crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater uh, what their unconventional love language might be. Like, what's the surprising way that they they show love to other people or know that they're being loved? And uh, they filled out these cards, and they've passed them up to the front. And Elena, you've got a big stack of them. What are you seeing? Um, I'm seeing a lot of... Uh, acts around the house, a lot of domestic kindnesses. Okay. Um, here's one from Sam. Sam's love language, turning on the heated mattress pad early so her side of the bed is warm when she gets in. Well done. That's nice. That's yeah. a really thoughtful thing. That's, I have to get better at that stuff. You can always be the mattress pad yeah. you want to see in the world, That's too. what Gandhi said, Yeah, I believe. I think, yeah, I think I am quoting Gandhi. 
<laughs> Another, this one I can really get behind. This is from Eve. Chilling the champagne glasses a half hour before he gets home. Hats off to you, Eve. Will you marry me? I know. <laughs> or star in an episode of Mad Men with me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a very 1950s. Very I've got the champagne glasses on ice. Mm. I've always wanted to walk in the door at the end of a long, hard day and hear a martini shaker going. Like, like it's like the cue is the garage door and then... Yeah. I got into a phase in my early 20s where I thought I was like... I don't know, in one of those 1950s things where I would come home every night and have a pretty healthy pour of like maker's mark on, mm. on the rocks. Mm-hmm. I don't even think that was a drink from the fifties, but in my <laughs> mind, it seemed like a thing Dean Martin would do. <laughs> yeah. I used to, I'd, I'd had the same thing. And when I was in my twenties, I wanted to be an adult and I wanted to start ordering martinis. And nobody told me that a martini is just a bowl of cold gin. Yeah. You drink yeah. one of those at five o'clock and you're like, good night, everybody. You're using the heated mattress pad. Before the sun goes down. <laughs> and you're not even at your house. Yeah. You've stumbled into someone else's house. Uh, is there another one there that, yeah. that you find entertaining Here's or Here's one from Anne. Uh, the unconventional love language in Anne's house is slaying all the bugs in the apartment, no questions asked. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That and a cold glass of champagne will yeah. get you a lifetime of devotion. Absolutely. Here's one from Brooke. Uh, the unconventional love language at Brooke's house Making pizza for each other whenever we know the other one is going to come home drunk. <laughs> that is just good planning, honestly. Well done. <laughs> this is Live Wire Radio from PRI this week. Our theme is love language. Our next guest is an Oscar-nominated filmmaker whose new deeply personal documentary, Moonlight Sonata, premiered at Sundance, and it will air on HBO this winter. She's worked as a news journalist, a Himalayan mountain guide, and recently founded the Treehouse Project, which is a nonprofit dedicated to greater accessibility of documentary film to blind and deaf audiences. Please welcome Irene Taylor Brodsky back to Livewire. Irene, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Um, you have made uh, so many great films in your career, and this new one is is not only Moonlight Sonata. It's not only a well-made film, but it is just so deeply moving and personal for you. Um, let's start with a little bit of your personal history. You have hearing, but your mother and father are both deaf. And so you were raised in this household where you and your siblings could hear, but your parents couldn't. What was that like for you, and what was it like for your parents? Well, it meant that my early music was my own, and we played it very loud. (laughs) I didn't inherit musical tastes from my parents. Um, But that is, you know, when I was growing up, particularly in middle school and high school, it's still what my friends from that era remember about me. Let's go to the Taylors and listen to really loud music, you know, and late into the night. Um, And it wasn't always very good music, but my first concert, I went to see Phil Collins' Face Value. See, I, I think part of that was because you couldn't play... I mean, were you concerned that if you played music that was too bass-heavy, the vibrations at least would bother your parents? Did that drive you towards the sweet, sweet tenor <laughs> sounds of one Philip Collins? <laughs> that did happen where mom and dad would wake up if the music went stratospherically loud into vibrating the right. whole house. But see, that's actually something that comes up in this film that I hadn't really thought about was the role that vibration plays for people who are deaf. Like your father went to 
uh, school for the deaf when he was a young child, and they didn't really teach sign, if I understand it right. He was taught to try to learn how to speak by feeling the vibration of his vocal cords. Mm-hmm. Well, both of my parents did. That's where they met, and uh, they knew each other since they were three. And imagine spending 80 or 90% of your academic time learning how to talk, learning how to lip read. And even before that, they had to learn even just the notion of sound and language and kind of figuring that out. Yeah, because your dad invented the Paul Taylor <laughs> TYY device. Do I have that right? Uh, the TTY. TTY device. What was that? Well, they're still in some airports in America, even in the age of smartphones. But you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they were enormously important for deaf people because they were the only way deaf people could talk to anyone via the telephone line, whether that was talking to their doctor's office via an operator, which was paid for by our government once the ADA was passed, or it was a way deaf people talked to other deaf people. And that's where my dad was really instrumental. And this was a very widely used device, right? I mean, this really changed some people's lives, this thing your dad invented. Well, there's a line in this film I made about my parents back in 2007 called Here and Now, Mm -hmm. where my father says, it was like trying to send a signal to the moon for so many years, and just one day, a signal came back at you. He said, that's what it felt like for me as a deaf person to finally be able to talk on the phone. And by that point, you know, in his character development in the film, hopefully you realize the profundity of that for him, you know, to be able to participate in something as simple as telephone conversation. Uh, This is Livewire. We're talking to Irene Taylor Brodsky about her new movie, Moonlight Sonata. Um, So you grow up and then you start having children yourself and you have a son named Jonas and his hearing is deteriorating when he's very, very young. Did you know that genetically there was a chance that he would also suffer from deafness? Well, we didn't know because we understood the genetic basis of any deafness in my family, but we just knew that anecdotally it was probably, uh, it it could happen. Statistically, deafness skips a generation. Um, I should say I have three fantastic boys. Two of them have typical hearing, but it was my first one Mm -hmm. who developed deafness. Um, So with the second two, we had our eyes wide open knowing that maybe they could be deaf. And so... uh, you know, that's when we actually found the genetic basis of it. I was struck by how much footage there is of Jonas as a really young kid at um, the audiologist and just going through the process of these cochlear implants. Were you filming all this stuff because you thought maybe this will be a film someday or was it just because you're a filmmaker, you trying to process? It was both. It was because I was a filmmaker and I obsessively document things, but my parents obsessively documented things. That's where I got my photographic instincts from. They were very visual. We grew up with a dark room in our house. But uh, I think what you're talking about that was very clear, uh, what might look like, oh, that's professional filming, not just handicam footage from you know 12 years ago, uh, was because I had made Here and Now, the film about my parents, with HBO. And when HBO, uh, when the head of HBO knew that Jonas was going deaf, she said, Irene, I'd like to just give you the resources to document the next couple of years of his life. And I said, thank you, but no thank you. I, I, I just made a film about my family. I'm good in that department. I think I just need to be a mother and figure out how to be a parent to 
a deaf kid in the 21st century. Um, but she said, appreciate it here. Just, and I thought, well, that's silly. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm an independent. Why would I turn down some funding to at least, <laughs> right. to at least just take some pictures, right? I didn't have to do anything with it, and I got to keep everything. So um, that's why you see all that. And I had documented that early part of his childhood, and, uh, and I didn't want to make a film. And so we just left it at that, and I got to keep the footage. And then it just sat there on hard drives for 10 years. And then when Jonas was 11, after he'd been playing piano for five years, and by this point had two cochlear implants, um, he announced to me and his dad that he wanted to play this famous sonata called the Moonlight Sonata, the first movement. And that is when I thought, ooh, maybe there's a story here. And when he started just fumbling through the first few bars of the piece the first few weeks, I would just sit there listening to him. And one day I pulled out my phone, which I try not to do as a mother with kids, you know, playing the piano. You pull out a full-on camera. <laughs> like, get well, it on the tripod. No, but I pulled out my phone to look up the, the, the sonata itself. And I learned that it was a watershed time for, for Beethoven. He had just come out of this deep suicidal depression for a couple of years where he left Vienna and he moved out to the countryside and he would just like wander around. People thought he was going mad. He would scribble in his notebook, you know, musical motifs all the time. But really what was happening was he could hear some days and then he couldn't hear other days. And of course he was deeply humiliated because he was a rising performer in Europe. So he was losing his ego pretty quickly along with his hearing. And the Moonlight Sonata, particularly the first movement, is what he wrote as he kind of rounded a bend and started to reemerge, and people started to see him again. So um, it's a very melancholic piece, but it becomes very energetic mm -hmm. as the piece goes on, but it starts out very um, unusual, and he really kind of broke the mold. No one ever wrote sonatas that way. But the idea that it was being written by a person who was losing their hearing, and then your son Jonas, who's deaf uh, and uses cochlear implants, then seeks it out. I mean, that is like the, the narrative arc of that is just incredible. And I thought that that's what the film would be. I thought it would be a film about, or a story, I should say, about an 11-year-old boy who wants to learn a piece written by the world's probably most famous deaf person, Beethoven, mm -hmm. while he was going deaf. But life came in and sort of entered in a different way, and the film became a little more than that. So. Yeah, what's so beautiful and also, I would say, bittersweet about the film is that you have your son Jonas, because he got the cochlear implants at a very young age, he was able to hear when he wants to, and then you have your parents who came up at a very different time, and they're moving towards the end of their life, and their life has been profoundly impacted by being deaf. And you really see the sort of contrast of these experiences. I mean, it's so intense. Like, was this emotionally wrenching for you to make this film? Well, I think always as a filmmaker, I've had an ethos of shoot now and think later. I mean, you need to think when you're shooting because you just have to know which way to point the camera. That, that may sound silly, but it's so elemental. I mean, a room is big. You really think the action may be here, but in fact, what's really interesting is what's going on over here. And so, to that extent, you're thinking, but a lot of it is just an endurance race in nonfiction filmmaking when you do the kind of filmmaking I do, which is just, 
it's a, a verite direct observational style. So the longer you are with your subject, the more opportunity and more likelihood, statistically speaking, that you're going to render something meaningful. You're, gonna, you're just gonna stumble on a moment that's notable or memorable or interesting enough to keep in the movie. Because of course, most of what you shoot falls on the floor. Right, there the, are the moments, proverbial editing room. Because there are like moments in this film, yeah. like your dad is sitting on the floor and one of his grandkids, who may actually be here at the he's theater here, right he's now. He's right over there. I don't want to shame this kid, but boy, he was really being loud. And his <laughs> granddad turns off his cochlear implant so he doesn't have to listen to the noise that this young kid is making. Well, did that really happen? I mean, would you... Well, you... that totally happened and I filmed it with an iPhone. I mean, I saw it starting to happen and I pulled my iPhone out of my back pocket and I started to shoot it. And about an hour later, my producer walked in. I was like, put this thing into the computer as quickly as possible. I don't want to lose it because it was, of course, so funny. It was, and it was, it was a perfect example of this thing that you really explore with the movie. By the way, we're talking to Irene Taylor Brodsky. Her new uh, film is Moonlight Sonata, uh, which will be on HBO this winter. Um, you really explore this idea of the ways in which being able to not listen to everything happening in the world has really been a force in your parents' life uh, and, and has defined them in a certain way, probably for Beethoven, your son Jonas. Like, you're not painting it as only a negative to not be able to hear. Uh, most definitely. I mean, I, look, I think growing up in the 70s and 80s with deaf parents before the ADA, you don't have some rosy view of what it's like to have a communication disability. It sucked. Mm -hmm. You didn't have legal support. You didn't have educational support. As my father says in Moonlight Sonata, he was in Birmingham, Alabama, and the public schools didn't want him. That's how he put it. And you know what? They didn't have to take him. So I don't try to glamorize the experience of deafness, but I think we have to appreciate Beethoven in the 1800s going deaf, Paul and Sally, my parents, in the 1900s going deaf, and Jonas going deaf in the 21st century now. It's a completely different experience. And what I note in that moment when my youngest son's grandfather can turn off his implant is that he has a superpower. And the superpower, it would be easy to think that the superpower you know, that Jonas has is a cochlear implant. But the superpower is not the technology, it's the choice. It's the choice to hear or not to hear. And if I had to say that this film is a story of my 11-year-old son kind of growing up or coming of age, what it is that he's learning is not just this piece called the Moonlight Sonata. He's learning that he has a special power to hear or not to hear, and maybe if he doesn't always hear, that informs his music. Because the one thing I will tell you, I knew all of the characters in this film very well. My family, my parents, but I didn't know Beethoven. I mean, I didn't grow up with classical music. I grew up on Phil Collins. I already told sure. you that, right? Who so I consider a classic. <laughs> Studio, in the air tonight? Come on, Irene. And that drumming, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. Anyway, so I, I, um, I think that Jonas came to see that his grandfather, for all the differences between them and their experiences, you know, that he had this power to shut the world out, but also to turn off the sound and feel the piano mm -hmm. and feel the emotion of the music 
in a different way that we can't even do if we tried, because putting Q-tips and cotton in your ears doesn't really work. So I really think that we need to think about Beethoven because Beethoven made the majority of the canon we recognize when he was going deaf or completely deaf. When he wrote the Ninth Symphony, he was completely deaf. Now you tell me, did he make that symphony in spite of his deafness? Absolutely not. He made it because of his deafness and it was informed completely by his deafness. He wrote every line for all 16 instruments and he could hear and synchronize it all in his head. I mean, that is mind boggling. That's way pre-cochlear implant. That's way pre-hearing aid. That's just the brain and intelligence and passion and deafness. Uh, what was it like for your like parent-child relationship to be filming your son Jonas so much and then to be kind of telling his story on, on film and then even here in this interview. Like, I know, I think Jonas is here too. Like, what's, it, what's, what's that like for you guys just as like a mother and a son? Mm -hmm. Well, there were a lot of late night filming sessions because we had an agreement that he would practice through the piece once he was getting pretty good at it three times a day, no, no matter what. And, uh, and so sometimes that didn't happen until 9.30 at night, till 20 minutes before he needed to go to bed. And we had a, a, a light, a professional studio light in our living room for eight months. And my kids actually really came to like it because we live in an old dark 1902 house and doesn't really have very good lighting. So, but we would just have it on anytime any of the kids played. All three of my kids play music. And you asked me like, what was it like? And I will tell you, I found, not just as a mother, but also as a filmmaker, I was just as interested following each of my kids. Mm -hmm. But I knew, especially as my dad started to enter the story more, that the deafness really was the focus. And I sort of saw the writing on the wall that the story would really have to be delicately tapered and distilled and it really would then focus more on the deaf child and the deaf parent, you know? And it certainly wasn't a favoritism, but that's hard when you're a filmmaker and you're mothering all three of these kids at the same time, and they are all equally atypical. Huh. They're all equally talented, you know? So that, part's, that part was tough. There's such a beautiful arc to the film because it really does follow uh, Jonas learning this piece of music and then performing it at the end. I don't want to ruin the ending, but I just want to say it's a beautiful film. It's, it's, a, it's a really amazing work, and congratulations. Irene Taylor Brodsky. The movie is Moonlight Sonata. We gotta take a quick break. Uh, this is Livewire from PRI. Don't go anywhere. Special thanks this episode to Joan Hubber of Portland, Oregon. Joan is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports us with a donation each month. We are so thankful for Joan's support because, well, it's how we're able to keep doing the show. So thanks for coming through, Joan. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. This week, our theme is Love Language. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We're here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. 
Our musical guests this hour have been described as having lush dream chord tendencies that place them squarely in the sweet spot occupied by bands like Red House Painters and Bon Iver, which is very high praise. Their first EP, Ghost, will be released in late 2019. Please welcome Bodies on the Beach to Livewire. Uh, welcome to the show, you guys. Hey, the uh, first song off of your new EP is out today, right? Congratulations. Yeah, yeah this morning. Thank you. Uh, what song are we going to hear? Uh, this is a song called Ghost. All right. This is the new one from Bodies on the Beach.
as bodies on the beach here on Livewire. Their EP, Ghost, is out now. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Irene Taylor Brodsky, Matthew Zapruder, and Bodies on the Beach. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Subchenko. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by Chet Leister. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members this week. We'd like to thank members Angela Gunderson of Phoenix, Arizona, and Jed Foster of Auburn, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.